0: They called him immigrant. In Japanese, he'd say he was called Issei. That meant first generation in the United States when everybody was afraid.
1: The remarkable life of Norman Mineta has been spent in public service and on behalf of the civic conscience. It's been bookended by two events that altered American history the attack on Pearl Harbor and the attack of 9 11. Pearl Harbor and the war meant the 10 year old American born Mineta and his family were sent to an internment camp in Wyoming. The second gave Mineta the opening to change history. His account of the roundup and internment of Japanese and Japanese-Americans moved President George W. Bush to say that he would not allow the same thing to happen to Muslim Americans. There's a lot of Mineta in between, the first Asian-American cabinet member serving both Democratic and Republican presidents as commerce and transportation secretaries, and that's his name you see on the San Jose airport, the city he served as mayor. A documentary on Minetta's barrier-breaking life airs May 20th on PBS. Minetta himself takes us through some of the highlights and low points of a life lived in the vortex of modern American history. You've been in a jillion news clips, news interviews over the years. Now here's this documentary about you. Why do you think it was important to tell your story this way?
2: Well, I think especially now given what's happening in immigration, civil rights. And uh, it's something I went through as a 10-year-old boy and really didn't think about ever seeing it happen again. And I was Secretary of Transportation for President George W. Bush, and 9-11 hit. And again, keep Muslims off airplanes. Ban Middle Easterners from flying. There was even some talk about rounding them up. And I thought, I don't believe this happening in uh, 9-11, 2001, given what I had experienced in 1942. And so that really drove
1: home the fact that you think it won't happen again? Yeah, it can. And President Bush said his talk with you about being in the internment camp really made him want to make clear that we would not do to Muslims what we did to Japanese and Japanese-Americans.
0: Well, one of the important things about Norm's experience is it reminds us that sometimes we lose our soul as a nation, Uh, that the notion of uh, all equal under God sometimes disappears. And uh, 9-11 certainly challenged that premise. And so right after 9-11, I was deeply concerned that. Our country would lose its way and treat people who may not worship uh, like their neighbor uh, as non citizens. So I went to a mosque. And in some ways, I, I, uh, Norm's example uh, inspired me. Whereas in I didn't want our country to do to others what had happened to Norm.
2: We were having a cabinet meeting on Thursday, September 13, with the House and Senate, Republican and Democratic leadership. And the president said, We are concerned about all this rhetoric we're hearing on electronic media and the print media, and we don't want to have happen to people today what happened to Norm in 1942. You could have knocked me off my cabinet chair when the president said that. And then on Monday, September 17, he met with a large group of Middle Easterners and Muslims at the Islamic Study Center in D.C., and said, we know who did that last Tuesday. They weren't uh, loyal uh, Arab-Americans. They weren't faithful followers of Muslim. They were terrorists, and we're going to go after them. And
1: that was his mantra. Striking to think how you influenced our national policy at a critical time.
2: In February or March of uh, 2001, my wife and I were invited to Camp David with the president. And so after dinner one night, he said, Norm, Tell me about evacuation internment. So he's one who likes to go to bed relatively early. And we sat there for three hours talking about evacuation internment. And so that little conversation came back to us on 13th of September.
0: There's no bitterness. And here's the greatest democracy in the world interning fellow citizens because of their background. And Norm could have been really angry but his reaction was very instructive to me, and that is, you learn from life's lessons and try to improve uh, on America. And his presence did just that.
1: The world changed on September 11th, 2001. The world also changed on December 7th, 1941. Your family, taken from everything you knew and had in San Jose, you had to leave your baseball bat because it might be a weapon to be moved to Wyoming. To an internment camp there you were 10 years old living at Hart Mountain. What were the things that as a boy that you missed that you learned about later? Well,
2: the thing that struck me was the fact that we got there in November of 1942, colder than places. The wind was blowing and so here we are Californians with light jackets, no heavy clothing, and uh, having to get acclimated to that cold weather. And I've always wondered, about the Sears catalog and the Montgomery Ward catalog, how much business they did from the camps, given all that i mean, we had no stores in those camps. And so um, I remember I got a pair of ice skates, get warm clothing. And I,
1: so the California boy learned to ice skate?
2: He sure did.
1: And then we had no schools
2: when we first got there. So our camp elders were concerned about, what do we do with the young people? And so they wrote to the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and said, please come and organize troops in our camps. So they did. And so we had um, eight to ten Boy Scout troops, and our scout leaders would write to the scouts in uh, Deaver, Powell, Cody, Ralston, all the communities surrounding Hart Mountain Camp, and uh, come on in for our jamboree. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not going to go in there. There's barbed wire around the whole camp. Their military guard towers with searchlights and machine gun mounts. We'd go downtown, and here would be a sign on the restaurant: "No Japs allowed." You sons of bitches killed my son at Iwo Jima. Now, how do you feel when you're a kid and you've been out to the Boy Scouts and seen guys just like yourself? He was an American citizen and they stuck them behind barbed wire. That's a hell of a thing to do to people. And our scout leaders would write back and no, 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 these are not POWs. They're Boy Scouts of America. They read the same manual you do. They wear the same uniform you do. They go after the same merit badges you do. And then finally, a Boy Scout troop from Cody, Wyoming, came in because their scout leader said, we need to visit these scouts in the camp. And it'll be a good experience for you and for them. We had a great time with the scouts from Cody and did all things Boy Scouts do, knot-tying contests, woodworking contests, how to start fires without a match. And then we got paired off with kids from Cody Troop. So this kid and I, well, that was Alan Simpson. I always said that I knew Alan when he had hair and he was roly-poly.
0: We're both rather pesky.
2: All I do remember is he has the same, I'm not even looking at him right now, he has the same look in his eyes that he did then, which is deviltry, peskiness. That blossomed into a great friendship, and we still have vacations twice a year together. We probably are on the phone
1: five, six times a month, and we just have a great time. This became one of the most singular friendships in Washington. You, a Democrat, Simpson, a Republican, a friendship of a sort that we don't see anymore. Why is that? How did yours last? Well, part
2: of it is because, I guess, the circumstance under which we met. I think part of the problem today is the schedule of the Congress. Generally, they come in on a Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. for the first vote and then most members know just to leave early Thursday morning so they don't get to know each other. We used to fight in subcommittee, full committee, rules committee, on the House floor, and yet we'd uh, get through the legislation, slap each other on the back and say, come on, let's go have dinner, let's go have a drink. And that kind of social give and take just doesn't occur today. It's been one wonderful, rich ride of true friendship. Which is a
0: beautiful thing. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, LA Times food columnist, and I think you'll be pleased to learn that the LA Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and a $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com HungryLA to subscribe.
1: You served under a Republican administration as Secretary of Transportation, under a Democratic administration as Secretary of Commerce, that wouldn't happen these days. It's more than just scheduling, isn't it?
0: I tried to depoliticize my cabinet. I didn't want people in there serving the Republican Party. I wanted people in there serving the country. And there's no better public servant for America than Normanetta.
2: The big thing, I think, is the fact that the word compromise is a bad word you can always have debates on whether the program ought to be 250 million, 500 million or 1.3 billion and compromise on the figures and even from a public policy perspective there are ways to be able to bridge the gaps and the differences between individuals but that conversation really doesn't happen today and where it was a natural thing before and frankly, um, it was in 1994, when Speaker Gingrich took over and that the Republican majority came in, I was the ranking Democrat on the, uh, what was then called the Public Works and Transportation Committee. And the first week, I didn't hear from the new chairman. Second week, no call. So the third week, I called him and I said, bud, when are we going to get together and talk about the uh, agenda? And he said, oh, Norm, he says, I should have called you before this. But the speaker says, we're now in the majority, and we don't have to consult with you guys. So here I am in March, April, twiddling my thumb. And then Senator Simpson called me up, and he said, I want to talk to you. So I said, well, why don't you come on over tomorrow, Tuesday at 2 o'clock? Uh, excuse me, you want me, a U.S. senator, to come over <laughs> to visit you? And I said, nah, you imperial bum. And I said, okay, I'll meet you in your office tomorrow at So then he said, on Thursday, Ann and I are going out to Cody, and I'm announcing that I'm not seeking re-election in 1996. He said, civility is starting to go, and I want to get out of here before the civility is totally gone. And that was
1: in April of 1995. One of your accomplishments in Congress was a commission and recommendation about an apology and redress to the people who were in the camps. How important was that to you?
2: The National Japanese American Citizens League in 1978 adopted a one-sentence resolution to undertake a program, legislative program, to seek an apology from the Congress and $25,000 per person redress payments. And Spark Monzaga said, well, you know, I have a bill dealing with the Native Hawaiian Claims Act. And I had a brilliant young legislative director by the name of Glenn Roberts. Glenn took Spark Matsunaga's Commission on Native Hawaiian Claims and adapted it to form what became known as the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians, legislation apologizing for the evacuation and internment and redress payments of $20,000 per person. And that became the Civil Liberties Act. And that was finally signed and into law by uh,
1: President Ronald
2: Reagan in 1988.
1: Were those apologies issued and the checks issued as well? They were. What did you do with your check? I donated the
2: whole thing. And even on the final vote on the Civil Liberties Act, I abstained on the voting. And instead of taking the money, I just donated it to the Japanese American National Museum University of California at Berkeley, Santa Clara University, and to the uh, National Japanese American Memorial Foundation.
1: Why did you abstain from the vote for something that you thought was right and had worked for?
2: Just that whole conflict of receiving financial uh, payments, so I just abstained.
1: You can look to two moments in your life as sort of bookending our national history, the Pearl Harbor moment and what followed. And then 9-11, when you were Transportation Secretary.
2: In the morning of 9-11, I was having breakfast with the Deputy Prime Minister of Belgium, who was also the Minister of Transport, and Jane Garvey, who was the head of Federal Aviation Administration. And my chief of staff came in and said, may I see you? We've heard uh, general aviation into the building. We've heard the possibility of a commercial airline into the building and the possibility of an internal explosion within the building. So I went in and explained to Mrs. Durant and Jane Garvey what I had just seen on television. And John came back in in about six, seven minutes and said, may I see you? So I excused myself, went into my office, and he said it was an American Airlines that went into the World Trade Center. So by the time I got back into my office, someone from the White House called and said, get over here right away. So I took my briefcase and put some government manuals in there and went downstairs to the car and drove over to the White House. And we're going in West Executive Drive, and people are running out of the old executive office building, and running out of the White House. Dick Smith, the security advisor to the president, said, you've got to be in the PEOC. And I said, what's the PEOC? Well, that's the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, which is way under the White House. So I got there probably about 9.25, 9.30. vice president was there already. So I plot myself in the middle of that table across from Vice President Cheney, and I set up one phone. So I set up one phone to the FAA Operations Center, keep the line open, don't hang up. And the other to my office, said the same thing, keep the line open, don't hang up. But one of the first things I did was to call FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, and called ACS, Aviation Civil Security. And I said, come over to my office and work with the deputy secretary and the chief of staff and start putting together a new regimen under which the airlines would be allowed to go back up. On Wednesday, I asked them how they're doing. And they said, well, this is what we're doing. And the first one right at the top of the list was no racial, ethnic profiling. And I thought, oh, man, it's going to be a little tough to get through. But because of what the president said at that cabinet meeting, I thought, well, maybe there is a possibility we could get it through. And so when I talked to him on Friday... He said, let it go. That's fine.
1: We'll leave it in there. And it was your office that ordered all the planes down over American airspace, yes?
2: There was a military assistant who had told the vice president, there's a plane coming towards Washington, D.C. So I'm on the phone with the Federal Aviation Administration with the transponder that would otherwise relay all this information had been turned off on this plane. So I'd say, where is it? Uh, somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. Where is it now? maybe north of Baltimore. Where is it now? And I'd keep up this question, and he'd say, well, it's probably between Pentagon City and National Airport. And then he said, oops, we just lost the target. About then, someone broke into the phone line and said, Mr. Secretary, we just got a call from a Arlington County police officer who saw an American Airlines going to the Pentagon. So I said, that's the third commercial airliner in the last hour and a half that's been used as a missile. And so we don't know what's going on. And the military has something called a stand-down, where they bring everything to a screeching halt. I said, we're going to have to do our own stand-down. So bring all the planes down immediately. He said, we'll bring all the planes down per pilot discretion. I said, Monty, screw pilot discretion, because I didn't want to pilot over, uh, let's say, Albuquerque, thinking, well, I'll just fly on into Los Angeles. I wanted all the planes down. So we had 6,438 planes in the air at that time over the U.S. And in two hours and 20 minutes, they were all down on the ground safely and without incident.
1: Where do you come down? Because language matters. Language can be loaded. Were you in an internment camp or a concentration camp?
2: I usually do not refer to it as a concentration camp because I don't want to take away from the severity of what the Jews had experienced through the Holocaust. But there's no question that internment camps gives a very marginalized description of the camps. These were prisons. We were not allowed to leave the camp. And so to that extent, I guess it's a form of a concentration camp. But when you think about concentration camps, I also think of the atrocities. I recognize the importance of uh, keeping that focus on the tragedies of those camps. And I don't want to take away from it by referring to the internment camps as uh, concentration camps because we were without our liberty, but it wasn't an atrocity.
1: You've worn an American flag pin on your lapel before other people started doing that. Why do you do that?
2: Because my experience as a member of Congress cabinet member. And still on some occasions today, I get treated more as a foreigner than I do as an American citizen. So I just continue to wear this flag to say, hey, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American, but I'm also proud of my Japanese ancestry. When those placards went up after the executive order was signed, and it said, attention, all those of Japanese ancestry, alien and non-alien, They didn't even call me a citizen, and I said to my brother, I said, what's a non-alien? He said, that's you. I said, I'm not a non-alien, I'm a citizen. And so I tell people, when's the last time you stood up on a chair, pounded your chest and said, I'm a proud non-alien of the United States of America? I don't think they have. And so that's why I cherish the word citizen, because the U.S. government, my own government, would not refer to us as citizens.
1: Well, Secretary Mineta, it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much.
2: Pat, great to be with you.
1: Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music's from the song Kenji by Fort Minor on the album Rising Tide from Warner Brothers Records and Machine Shop Recordings. The clips are from the documentary Norman Mineta and His Legacy. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.